For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hertel. All right, let's do some history and use that to talk about politics. Now it's something we love to do. A buddy of ours, he's a contributor at Ordinary-Times.com. He is a history professor, so we have to mind our P's and Q's today. Uh, Eric Mendelin, how are you, sir? Doing fantastic. How are you doing, Andrew? Good. Good to have you, buddy. Good to talk to you on this format. We've had you on the old radio show. Hadn't had you on this one yet. Uh, you were writing in Ordinary-Times.com about something that comes up every election year, we're in an election here. I don't know if you heard, uh, but <laughs> const- yeah, constantly people are always braying and crying about third parties. You wrote about it in Ordinary-Times.com, but you took a different angle on it because you went back and oversaw the history of third parties and the fact that this is a very, very old idea and the fact that it doesn't get any traction nowadays is kind of in line with the history of third parties in America. Yes, I think that there's this there's this misconception that earlier periods were not aware of certain concepts about third parties, the most important being that, you know, the idea of the third party spoiler, if I vote for the third party, then the party that I kind of sort of like more might lose because it the, the, the Ralph Nader effect type thing. And it's almost like People think that this idea was invented in 2000, but from the very beginning of political parties, people knew that. And the idea of the spoiler was a concern and has always been a concern for third parties ever since they started back in the 1830s. You could argue that they started in the 1830s with the anti-Masonic party. So my, my piece was about how third parties have emerged because they have, they play an important role in political history. Um, the Republican Party kind of sort of started as a third party. And there have been other really successful third parties in history. So my piece was about how those third parties rose, how they came to prominence, and how they affected the system, and how I don't think that's going to happen this time around. Talk about that anti-Masonic party, because that really was kind of the first outsider party this is really early on in American history, but it did set the tone for kind of outliers trying to start something and then it just kind of peters out. But that's a that's something we see all the way up through the modern era. Oh, yes. Anti-Masonic Party was basically uh, based on a conspiracy theory, based on the idea that the Masons were running the country and that you needed a new political party because more or less the two parties that were in charge at the time were, were beholden to Masonic interests. And that's the theme that you see a lot with these third parties. Both parties that are, that are in existence, they're usually two parties in American history, both parties are not delivering something that the country needs, either 
nativism or uh, banning slavery in the territories or helping out farmers or banning alcohol. The Prohibition Party was something that I talked about in my piece. You know, Democrats aren't banning alcohol. Republicans aren't banning alcohol. Let's form a party that's going to ban alcohol. Let's form a, form a party that's going to stop Masonic influence in American life. Let's ban a party, start a party that's going to uh, reduce immigration, things like that. You need this, this, this theme, this political project that the two parties are not, are not responding to. And it's not, I'm not happy with the political system which we have now, lots of people are not happy with the political system. Congress is less popular than root canals, blah, 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 blah. But you need that central theme that makes it not helpful to vote for either party. So you don't care if you're a spoiler. Yeah. And the other problem of that is if it's a single issue party, the shelf life is going to be really short because we know prohibition didn't last very long, got overturned. Um, immigration comes and goes, but if that's all your party's doing, it's probably not going to get a wider base of traction because both parties already have kind of entrenched policies on those things. These single interest parties are never going to work. And then the flip side of that coin is uh, we've seen more of a populist bend and a cry for a populist party lately, but that's not new either. That's actually pretty part and parcel to American politics, especially in the last 100 and 120 odd years. Exactly. And the populist party, that was one of my main examples of a successful party. They were successful because they took over a party that existed at the time, the Democratic Party. The Democrats found an issue and a candidate that would basically take over the populists, the silver question and William Jennings Bryan. And the populists mostly don't run a candidate in 1896 like they had planned to for the previous uh, four years. That's how, that's the, the, the trial run, the successful archetype of a successful um, third party is basically not a third party that exists for a long time. The prohibition party that you mentioned, it exists today. Uh, I looked it up and the leader's name is Phil Collins. He doesn't get that many votes every year but he does exist and he does uh the the party does try to run i'm assuming he's not a in the air tonight phil collins we'll just no, assume it's that. yeah <laughs> um talking to eric medlin historian a uh, good friend of ours good writer here's the thing about these third parties though um people keep seeming like they want them but we always talk on this show about turning down noise actions not words people say it but they don't live it and they don't do it in their actions when they actually end up going to the polls. When we have had third parties, we have people that do good spoiler campaigns. Ross Perot did very well considering the environment, but that's about it. So why do people keep saying they want something when they don't turn around and vote for it? I think that's a great question. And it fuels those occasional, those occasional third party runs that you do see, you know, your John Anderson's, your Ross Perot's. But I think it's just this, unhappiness with how the, the political system is is filled with you know, sand in the gears and veto points and there's a general unhappiness with how fast politics change and with how few reforms seem to happen the system is really set against 
significant reforms. And so the easiest way is seen to be a third party. And if you have a third party that come coalesces around the idea that both parties don't work, then you can change the political system like the populists did. I mean, 1896, they, they push for William Jennings Bryan, 1900, 1904, you have Teddy Roosevelt, you have all these progressive policies, you have Taft and Wilson, who are progressives, who introduce all these reforms. It can work, but you have to have that, that, that idea where you don't care if your traditional party actually wins or loses. And a lot of people, even though they want change, they really view themselves as Democrats or Republicans. Yeah, we're talking to Eric Medlin, historian. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue to delve into this third party. Uh, instead of the caterwauling about it, we're going through history and showing how this has and hasn't worked in the past, because that's probably going to be prelude to how this is going to go in the future. Some more with Eric Medlin on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We're with our friend Eric Medlin. He's a historian. He's also a great writer. He's writing in ordinary-times.com about third parties, which everybody talks about. Um, let's just get to the nitty-gritty of this thing, though. You talk about third parties. I could argue, based off the numbers, um, you talked about people in the end, they just they don't mind being Republican and Democrats enough to not be Republicans and Democrats, or at least vote that way. Could I not argue that we already have a third party because... Donald Trump got record-setting uh, votes for the Republican Party in 2020. Uh, Joe Biden got record-setting votes for the Democratic Party and the overall vote counts in 2020. And then you had about a third of the country that even with all that hotness going on with the politics still said, nah, bro, I'm good and stayed home. Isn't the cycle now and the dynamic now that you really have three political parties? You have Democrats, you have Republicans, and you have the people that aren't voting. Yeah, and I think that that is the... the um the way forward for people who say they want a third party, they want to change the political system. It's really trying to appeal to those people who are not part of the system. Though that third that's not voting, you know, it's not a monolith. It's not the exact same group of people every time around. And so you pull from here and you pull from there. And that's what I think of when you hear these these narratives about, oh, the, the Democratic Party is doomed by educational polarization and they, they don't the way that the Senate is structured, they don't have a chance. I think that they really one of these days they're going to find an issue, a an approach that pulls in enough of those people who are on the sidelines, who were on the sidelines in 2016, and then they came out to vote were on the sidelines in 2020, and then they came out to vote. The party's eventually going to find those people and start to, to, to change for the better in, I think, a way that a lot of people would be happier with. Now, people look at the normal uh, way politics are going now, and they can see factions in the parties. They haven't split the parties yet, but the factions are pretty clear. You have the populist uh, Trump wing of the Republican Party and then the old moderates and the old conservatives are, are you know, to the center of them. You have the progressive left that is getting empowered and very, very loud, but they're still electorally a small part of the larger Democratic Party. Um, we can see where the fissure lines are in the parties. It's pretty evident to anybody paying attention. 
But just seeing those fault lines and meaning there's going to be some kind of divorce where you get two whole more parties out of either of those groups is a whole different beast, isn't it? Because now you're not talking just ideology. You're talking mechanics. You're talking about actual the way machinations of political parties work. Talk about that divide because the examples you give, like the Democrats being taken over by the populace in the late 1890s, they had a structure to do that. That sort of structure doesn't really exist right now. Yeah, I think that these parties, you know, there have really only been two times that a major party in American history has collapsed. And those two times emerged from treason in the 18-teens and civil war in the 1850s. Ever since then, these two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, have adapted and they've been forced to change and they've taken on new attributes. They've brought in new people. They've reformed themselves. The Democrats did in the 70s when the, the post-Watergate reforms were seen as this building of a new, a new Democratic Party that wasn't beholden to the, to the machines. They change when they have to. And the Democratic Party sees no desire. They, they believe that, you know, the, the more progressive wing and the more centrist wing have achieved the trifecta in government. And they had a trifecta in government about 10 years ago. You put one of these parties out of power for 10, 15, 20 years, like happened in the 1930s. I mean, if you look at how the Republican Party did in the House between 1932 and 1994, it's exceptionally terrible. You need those kinds of changes. You need those uh, those devastating losses and those large stretches out of power to really force these parties to change because they're really around to put politicians in charge of the government. And if the politicians are not being in charge of the government, then they feel the need to really seriously change. But right now, I don't think they have. I don't think they believe that. No, they don't. And we have the numbers to prove it because Congress is the most uh, partisanly divided Congress is. Usually it's a large. These are very thin majorities. These are the thinnest majorities we've ever really seen. People forget we talk about FDR. He had two thirds majorities, both houses at one point. It's just unthinkable now. This is going to continue to be a thing. I think even like the coming midterms, just because the Republicans take Congress, they're going to have two years of them being in power and Joe Biden's going to get a run against that. It changes that dynamics. I think just the dynamics and the polarization and how close these margins are because the country's close. I mean, it reflects the margins in the country. Does that almost take away the need of it? Because it's just such a fine margin now that nobody's going to want to step out and go, we can't afford to break off 15, 20 percent of any party at this given time. Well, the the Republican Party is convinced that if the Democratic Party wins, they're going to impose socialism and communism and make critical race theory the official uh, ideology of the United States. And the Democratic Party is convinced that if Republicans win, they're going to impose fascism. And there's really no desire to to have the other party to, to threaten the strength of one's party and to threaten the viability of one's party, even though, as you say, the majorities are so thin. And once a party gets into power with a 50 seat majority, what are they going to do? As you as as we've seen, a party with a 50 vote majority in the Senate, well, majority with the vice president, they have to make every single member happy, which means they don't pass very much. So these these uh, the voters are trying as hard as they can to put people who they support and who they like in charge, mainly so the other party is in charge. 
And that is not, that is a recipe for the 1870s and 1880s when every election was a rehash of the Civil War, more so than 1890s and the 1920s where these strong third parties are coming up and they're challenging the main two parties and the main two parties are saying, hey, maybe we need to change what we're going to do right now. I don't think we believe that. Yep, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And right now we got ourselves a rap song going. Uh, Eric Medlin, our friend, our historian. Uh, you also have a great local history book out. You do a lot of local history writing. Let people know where they can follow you on social media, where you're writing, and about your book and such so they can find you. So uh, they can follow me at twitter.com slash Medlin Writes. And this is my book. History of Franklin County, North Carolina. You can buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and online. Just Google History of Franklin County, North Carolina, Eric Mitt. And he writes for us at Ordinary-Times.com. He also has a Medium page. Make sure you check that out. Follow him at both places. Good guy, good writer, good perspective. Even might need to work on his home shopping network presentation there. That wasn't super smooth. We might have to work on that. My <laughs> friend. For those of you watching on the YouTube channel, uh, Eric Medlin, great job, buddy. Appreciate you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Take well, care. We'll have you back for sure. Thank you, sir. 